working in poverty situations. Um, I'm interested in working in the worst of the worst situations by war, by AIDS, Ebola, by slavery. Children that are affected by these things is where I want to be. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 70, Brian Baker, Adventure Travel with a Purpose. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today's show is a little unique for the Adventure Sports Podcast. We're talking about adventure travel, but not just any adventure travel. This is Adventure Travel with Purpose. Back in 1993, I was blessed to get to take a trip to Kenya with Brian Baker. And together we went there to build a school and to have some cultural interaction and to see Africa. It was an amazing five-week trip. But it inspired Brian to try to make a difference around the globe. And for the last 20-plus years, Brian has been traveling to over 20 countries and doing amazing projects, helping orphans, helping people with AIDS, helping Ebola victims, helping people that are refugees from war-torn areas, adventure travel with a purpose. A word of advice, though, for parents with children— There is mature content in this show, so not all the content will be appropriate for young children, so please be advised about that. But Brian, we're so glad that you're on the show with us today. Welcome to the program. It's good to be here, Curtis, and good to reacquaint myself with you. You bet. Brian, I told the guest a little bit about what you've done, but I'm going to dive a little deeper and then let you do the same. Brian has been to 20-some-odd countries around the globe And he's not just gone to the easy places. Brian has done projects in Sudan, Tanzania, Ghana, Benin, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Kenya, uh, Dominica, Haiti, Nicaragua, Belize. He's been to Singapore, Mexico, Japan, United Arab Emirates, India, and more and more. And Brian is not afraid to get dirty, (laughs) to get out there and dig in with the local people and uh, try to make a difference in the world. So, Brian, tell us about this. Well, Curtis, you're right. I got acquainted with this whole adventure with you back in 1993. We took a trip together to Kenya to build a school together, and that was kind of an introductory trip for me into humanitarian work, and I haven't slowed down since. In fact, uh, that's what I do for a living now is do world missions and set up uh, orphanages and set up uh, safe houses for girls we've rescued out of sex trafficking, uh, set up drop-off homes for prostitutes to drop off their babies if they don't want them, uh, set up homes for children that have been affected by Ebola and AIDS, find support for people in refugee camps that have been affected by war. That's mainly what I've done. There's other things, but uh, I've kind of been full-time into this over the last 10 years. Um, Before then, it was kind of uh, something I was excited about doing once a year or something, get out of the country and do a project, but now it's uh, something I do full-time. So, uh, But it all started back in 1993 when we took a trip and set up a school 
that school is operating right now has 185 kids in it, and uh, it's a uh, K through eight school. And um, at that school, about 45 of those kids are orphan children. Many of them have lost parents to AIDS in Kenya, and that's in southern Kenya. But that's where it all started. Um, probably the thing that really kind of hooked me was three years later when I met up with a fellow. We were heading to India, and then I was going to depart from him and, and then go on by myself on to Kenya. When we got to India, we um, had a layover in Calcutta before we traveled up to the northeast to go up near the Nepal border to do some work up there. But while we were in Calcutta, we were stuck there for four days, and we would go out in the evening. I couldn't help but notice that everybody there just seemed hopeless. I mean, their, their lives, their eyes mainly, they just looked empty, like they were just didn't have any meaning to their lives, and they just walked around in a daze, and it looked like looked like I was watching some kind of zombie film. And uh, so we would walk in the evenings and see all these people, and they just had no joy in their lives. And, and I, I was just kind of blown away by how destitute Calcutta was. I had heard that Calcutta is nicknamed the armpit of the world. And when I got there, yes, the conditions are, are terrible, some of the worst I've seen. But it was the sheer hopelessness of everyone walking the streets that makes it so much worse than anywhere I've been. The day before we flew out, you know, they had this thing going on. It doesn't happen much anymore, but back 15, 20 years ago, if you wanted to fly somewhere and you were in a foreign country and you wanted to fly to your next place you went, you had to confirm your ticket 24 hours in advance. If you didn't confirm your ticket, then they wouldn't let you on the plane, even though you had bought a ticket. So we went to go confirm our ticket in Calcutta to fly up to the northeast up by the Nepal border in India. After we left the uh, the sales ticket office, we got in a taxi, and the taxi driver said, uh, are you ready to meet Mother Teresa now? And we thought this guy was joking, but sure enough, he took us to where she lived, and we walked down an alley, and it wasn't anything fancy, and we knocked on some doors and a a nun came to the door and led us up some stairs and down some halls. And the next thing you know, we're sitting here with probably one of the, one of, if not the most famous woman of the last 100 years. Uh, this was in 96. This is about a year and a half before she died in February of 96. We held her hand. She told us about her, her work there in Calcutta. And I was just blown away that we had just walked into the presence of this woman and um, I'm not Catholic, but I am. Uh, I was just blown away that she would want to spend any time there. And when I looked into it, she had spent over 60 years of her life in, um, or, or over 50. It's, it's somewhere in the 50 to 60 year range. I, I don't remember exactly, but she had spent that time there. And I'm like, why would anyone want to live there? I found out later on that she had been proposed to by as a young lady and she could have married into royalty and she turned it down. And when she took a, a boat over to India, they asked her how much she had for her journey. And, and she said she had the equivalent of what would be $2 today. Wow. She had nothing. And she made her trip there. And I, I heard that when she got off the boat, that when she walked down the, the road, there was sewage running down the road, down the, the gutter of the road. She came across a lady lying in that sewage. The sewage was 
running over her as she was lying in the sewage. And she looked a little closer and found, found out that that lady's body was covered with ants. And there was actually some rats that had been chewing on her and eating her. And she, but she was still alive. And Mother Teresa uh, nursed her back to health. And that was her first thing that she took on when she got to India. Well, after I read all this and heard about this woman that I just met, this Mother Teresa, I was just blown away. And I was just like, from then on, I was hooked. I was like, if I can accomplish one one hundredth of what Mother Teresa has accomplished in her life, then I'm doing all right. From then on, I was just hooked on going to these places and helping people. And uh, we left there. We flew up to this area up in northeast India. And I ate some soup I shouldn't have been eating. I think I got meningitis. I was as sick as I've ever been up there. I've been through some painful things. I've had shingles and I had my appendix rupture. And I've I went through some painful experiences in life. But I don't know that anything compares to the pain I felt when I was up there in India. And just, Curtis, I, I think you remember this. You remember yeah. something happened during that same yeah, let time. Me, let me tell that story. You know, sometimes things happen in life that we can't really explain and we may not understand. But while Brian was up in this area in northeast India, I woke up in the middle of the night having had a dream about him, which was really strange. I'm not a person who has a lot of dreams. And I dreamed that he was in severe trouble. And I just felt really compelled to take some time and and to pray and to think about Brian and, and was wondering what was going on. Well, it turns out when he returned back, then he told me when he had been sick up there. And it was just fascinating to me that something woke me up in the middle of the night because he was so sick. Yep. I lived through that. I was in a lot of pain for about three or four days before I kind of came out of it and flew back out of... I was up in that area for about... 10 days, I believe, and flew back out of there. And uh, on my way from uh, that area over to Kenya, I had a layover in Mumbai. And I was stuck in a, a motel for about four hours. And if you've ever been in a foreign country that's really destitute, you have people that just are constantly hanging on you. They want your your money, basically. And they just, um, they're trying to con you out of it in any way they can. And I was in this motel for about 24 hours waiting to fly out of there, and I couldn't stand being in my room because there was something going on with my toilet. And this wasn't an American toilet. It was, a, it was made in India, so I didn't even know how to fix the thing. And I was trying to get this toilet to work, but the thing just kept flushing. About every 15 to 20 seconds, the thing would flush, <laughs> and it just wouldn't stop, and it was loud. And it just went on for like 24 hours. And I just couldn't handle being in this room with the toilet constantly flushing. And so I would go out of the motel and, and uh, try to hang out in the veranda or something and, and get some peace from the toilet. And then people would come up and beg me and beg me and beg me, especially taxi drivers. They wanted to take me everywhere, all over Mumbai and show me all the sights and Finally, this guy, I was sitting out there, and I had been sitting there for about an hour and a half, and he just wouldn't let up. After an hour and a half, he wanted to take me to the beach. Finally, I just said, fine, take me to the beach. And he drove me to the beach, and as soon as we got there, he, he opened the door for me and said, okay, out. And I says, I'm not getting out. I'm not interested in the beach. He says, well, why did you want me to take you here if you didn't, if you didn't go to the beach? He says, because you wouldn't let up. I says, now take me back to the motel. 
And he drove me back <laughs> to the motel and I paid him his two bucks or whatever he charged me for taking him on this hour long excursion. And then he left me alone after that. So from there, I flew to, to Kenya. The trip just kept getting more and more interesting as I went along. We uh, arrived, and we were traveling down to an area on the Kenya-Tanzania border. There's these Maasai warriors that live down there, and they're, they're violent people. And we're walking through this big field, and it wasn't like the rest of the field. Somebody had taken some time and trimmed it all down with a machete so that it, there was no undergrowth. It was, it was all just trimmed down. And so I asked somebody, I said, is this a soccer field? And they said, no, this is where we do battle. And I said, what do you mean? Like you have like um, sporting fights or what, what do you mean? He says, no, this is where we come to this field to kill each other. And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. He says, the Maasai's meet with this other Kalinjan group or some other tribe and, and they, uh, they, they do their battles on this field. And sure enough, wow. when we left there, it, that was a Friday. The next day on Saturday, or on Sunday, I had read the paper, and on Saturday, they had had a battle in that same field, and six people had been killed. And I was just blown away that they just have this as a regular occurrence out in this field. They go to do battle there. And this is in 1996. Once I left there, I got on a plane, and I was excited. I, I've climbed some 14ers in my day in Colorado, and I was excited to be flying from Nairobi and be flying to the southeast. And I would be flying down into Tanzania from Tanz Dar es Salaam down in Tanzania. I'd be flying from Dar es Salaam back to Mumbai to catch a flight from Mumbai back to the United States. So you're going to fly over Kilimanjaro. I was going to fly right by Kilimanjaro. I was excited about seeing it. I had never seen a mountain um, that high before, that tall, one of the seven summits. When we got in the plane right before takeoff, the, the pilot came on and said, uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, your normal pilots will not be flying the plane today. Um, we're some substitute pilots that they flew in to fly this plane, and uh, we'll be on our way sh shortly. I didn't think anything of it at the time, uh, but we got up in the air, and I kept looking out my window because we had left the Nairobi airport around 5 or 6 in the evening, so I knew the sun would be setting in the west, and I was sitting on the east side of the plane, and I was going to be looking out the window and observing Mount Kilimanjaro. Well, we got up in the air, and the sun was setting on the wrong side of the plane. And I thought, why? I don't know if anybody else is catching what's going on, but we're not going southeast. We're going northwest. And we flew for about three hours. And so if a plane goes approximately 500 miles an hour, we were about 1,500 miles northwest of Nairobi. And I started figuring this out in my head. And we landed on an, a little airstrip out in the middle of a field somewhere. And I thought, you know what? They have just set us down in North Sudan in Darfur, basically, where this skirmish took place between North Sudan and South Sudan. And this Darfur is this hot spot that is right there. And I figured that's where we are. And they took us out of the plane and they put us in this little shed. There wasn't many of us on the plane. I think there was only about 30 of us on this plane. It was a, um, I think it was a 737. So it wasn't a real big plane to begin with. But they put us in this shed, and I looked out through the crack of the door, and, and we landed there about 10 in the evening, I believe. And, uh, and I could see him out there unloading wooden crates out of the bottom of our plane. Who knows what? Who knows what? Some kind of, I, I assume 
you know, AK-47s or something into this conflict zone. And I quickly put two and two together that my plane had been hijacked. And so we were in this shed thing for about three or four hours. And then they put us back in the plane and they flew us to Mumbai. We never went to Tanzania. And uh, that was my little experience with a hijacked plane. Wow. Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a of retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. Come celebrate with us August 10th through 16th as more than 100 youth from over 12 countries from around the globe travel to the Vale Valley for the 14th Annual World Youth Fly Fishing Championships. We are proud to host this Olympic-style event and to showcase the Colorado free-flowing rivers and scenic beauty for all the global competitors. You can help by volunteering to be a part of the event. For more information, go to www.wyffc2015.com or just search for World Youth Fly Fishing Championship 2015. We hope to see you there. You know, Brian, there are a lot of people who want to see the world, and adventure travel is very highly spoken of. Uh, it's it's something that I think is very, very beneficial for people to do just because the cultural interactions and realizing how the world really works and that sort of thing. But you have gone to some of the underbelly parts of the world, and you've had some kind of rough experiences. Do you think, from your perspective, that adventure travel is safe? Yeah, you know, as time goes on, it becomes more and more unsafe. Um, places that I used to feel completely safe going to, even like a place like Kenya, doesn't seem that a few months go by without hearing about another, um, some type of Al-Qaeda or ISIS attack happening. And oftentimes it's in Kenya, a place that I've been to seven or eight times. It seems that as time goes on, Places that used to be a great vacation spot are now not so safe. But am I going to keep doing it? Yes. You know, I assume that people probably think the same thing about us here in America. They think, well, I'm not going there. The children kill each other in their high schools. They don't think it's safe to come here. They might hear about wildfires or 
tornadoes, you know, it doesn't matter where you're at. Something's going to happen. Of, of course, there are exceptions to that. But yes, I, I'm going to keep traveling. Um, I'm become more aware of my surroundings every time I go out of the country. I keep my eyes open a lot more. I, I used to not have any cares and I would just be enjoying myself and joking around and having fun with my travel companions and stuff. But anymore, I, um, I'm a lot more deliberate about where I'm going and just keeping an eye out for things going on. Mm. You know, I think that there are many, many <laughs> millions, without exaggerating, of places in the world that are delightful for a vacation or, or safe for travel. But I think it's also wise, especially because you've been exposed to uh, some of the tougher places. And I think it's wise that people have that situational awareness. It's not that you have to be scared, I don't think. It's more that you need to be alert. And uh, I am alert when I'm walking, you know, down the city streets in Denver, Colorado. Another situation that I have been in recently, last December, I was in uh, northern Kenya up on the the Ethiopia, uh, South Sudan border. And South Sudan is relatively calm now. It's, uh, you know, South Sudan broke off of North Sudan a couple years back. And, uh, but Ethiopia is kind of a dangerous country still. And over in this area I've been working in for about five or six years, it's by a, a Lake Turkana and right up on the very Northern tip on the, on the West shore of Lake Turkana is um, an area I've been working at that's kind of violent. The Ethiopians come across, um, will kill the man of the household and make off with goats and the cattle. And they're, they're just thugs that are thieves. And I, when I first started working there, I was a lot more concerned about the Sudanese and, and all the lost boys that had escaped Sudan and had ended up in Kenya in these refugee camps in Kenya and in Uganda. But over the last several years, I have found out that um, Ethiopia is a lot more dangerous than Sudan anymore. And when I was there in December, when we got there, we stayed in a, it was like a hostel. And I wouldn't call it a motel. It's kind of a tin shed more than anything. When we arrived, the man that we were meeting up in there to work with, he said that there were gunshots in his village. This village is probably two or 300 people in this little village. He said there was gunshots the night before and that, that hopefully that we would be safe in this hostel. Well, when we checked in, we found out that the, the woman that ran the hostel was, um, had been deputized. She was kind of a, a, a stocky woman. We left the door wide open to our room because there was, it was just stagnant air in there and it probably didn't cool down below about I think in the middle of the night, it was probably close to 100 degrees, um, and t daytime temperatures were around 110 or so. And so we just left our door wide open into this gated, we were in a gated hostel, so there was uh, kind of an open area that had a fence all the way around it, a tall steel fence that was about eight feet high. And sure enough, in the middle of the night, somebody came to the gate and was beaten on it and trying to get in. And the motel lady went out there and was able to convince them to leave. And But they were coming in for us. And so they heard an American was staying there, I guess, a, a, a Mazungu, they would call me, uh, a white skin. And they were coming to get me. And uh, mm. luckily, this lady was able to turn them away at about 
two or three in the morning and get them to leave. I've been in some areas, and, and like I said, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. But as time goes by, these places become more and more violent. Places that I, I've always felt comfortable going are not so comfortable anymore. Well, that's fascinating perspective. I think it probably has a lot to do with the areas that you go to because you are there to try to make a difference in the world. And so it leads you into places where people are in need, where people are hurting. You know, I wanted to briefly make a list of some of the projects that you've worked on over the years, and then you can tell us more about this. But um, you've built schools in places and communities that otherwise would have no schools for the children. You've created safe houses so that ladies that are trying to escape from sex trafficking or prostitution have a place to go where they can be protected. Um, you've built orphanages. You have put together sponsorship programs for children, for instance, the lost boys that escaped from Sudan so that they wouldn't have to fight in those horrible wars after their parents had been killed. You've created homes for children who lost their parents to Ebola recently. You have created homes for children who have lost their parents to AIDS. You visit the war-torn areas to see what the needs are and try to make a difference. And um, you were just telling me before the show about an area in Pakistan where children become indentured servants and essentially end up being slaves for life, and you're starting a program there to try to deliver these children from this oppression. You've rescued temple prostitutes out of a voodoo temple in Benin and created a safe house there for for these young ladies. Crazy stuff, Brian, all over the planet. You're trying to make a difference, but, man, you're sticking your neck way out there. So tell us more about the current projects that you're working on and what it's like to be involved in these parts of the world. Well, that last one you mentioned in Benin has kind of been a focus over the last year. I met a man uh, three or four years ago that I had been hearing about. I, I was kind of wanting to involve myself in not the normal type of sex trafficking, but get involved in things that where it's maybe a little bit different. Everybody's focus is on India and Thailand and and uh, Laos and these areas that are kind of known as sex tourist destinations. While everybody's focus is on those type of sex trafficking issues, I was kind of wanting to get involved in areas that may not get the attention of most people. And I met this man from Benin. Benin is where voodoo, the voodoo religion came from. And voodoo can be pretty evil. You've heard about voodoo dolls, and, but people literally put curses on people and it can even curse people to death. And, and that's just beyond our imagination. But these kind of things still happen in the year of 2015. And uh, I met this man that had rescued a couple girls out of these voodoo temples. And what happens is in this religion of voodoo, everything has to do with curses. And so if a man believes he has a curse on his life, you know, things are just not going good. It's one thing after another. It's uh, just bad luck. And so he'll go to the witch doctor and he'll, he'll tell the witch doctor his problems and the witch doctor will tell him, I will take this curse off of you and protect you from the evil spirits, but you're going to have to give me something in return. And usually it's a large sum of money that this man will never be able to come up with, several thousand dollars. And so 
as an alternative, the witch doctor will say, well, I'll take one of your daughters instead. And so the family will give over their daughter to this man so that he will be able to have the curse broken off his family. Regardless, this family is basically giving their daughters over to this man so that he can marry them. And uh, sometimes these girls are, are young. They might be less than 10 years old. And they're basically a slave to the temple. They're not just a sex slave. They will do the, the chores. They'll do the dishes and they'll do the laundry and they'll work in the fields and they'll bring in the crops and they'll plant the crops and they'll you know do whatever the witch doctor tells them to do because they're his slave. And he won't call him a slave. He'll call him his wife. And they'll have a little matrimonial ceremony. And, and this girl might be one of up to 100 wives that this man will have. So he'll have a whole harem of women that are serving in the temple. And his job is to impregnate them and have more kids so more people can serve him. So he can just... Hmm. Uh, live the easy life and everybody takes care of him. So Brian, I, I had to interrupt here a little bit just because from the American perspective, this sounds like a wild tale in a sense, because I mean, we see voodoo in Pirates of the Caribbean. We hear about voodoo and, and uh, there are people that practice voodoo in the United States and say, Oh, it's good for you. It's good for you. Right. And people say, well, this is, you know, this is the 21st century. Surely we don't have this kind of sex trafficking and stuff going on in the world anymore. It's been fixed, right? What you're telling us is that there are places around the world where it is still a very major problem and where voodoo is not the light hobby that some people might think it is, but where people are using it to control others and to amass power and wealth and and uh, to really oppress people. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you've hit it right on the head there. You know, sex trafficking happens in many different forms throughout the world. It happens here in the U.S. Actually, like 35 million slaves are in the world today. Um, there are more slaves of one type or another. About 80% of these slaves are sex trafficking victims, but there are more slaves now in one year of time than there were in 200 years of time during the transatlantic slave trade. So, Brian, why do you think it is that we don't hear about this from the media? We're, we're all just kind of uh, going along with our daily lives, having fun, and, and where's the media? Where's the outcry? Where's the outrage? You know, it's out of mind. It, you, you don't see it. It's not, uh, it's not given nearly as much attention as drug trafficking by the U.S. government. The U.S. government pours way more money into drug trafficking than they do into sex trafficking. And so it's just, it's out of sight, out of mind. That's all I can say. Well, let's let's rewind a little bit and talk about how children end up in quote-unquote slavery in Pakistan. What's going on there? Before I go there, I just want to say that we have been, with this man I met in Benin, we were able to rescue 13, well, now it's 16, 16 girls in the last uh, several years out of these temples in Benin. So, but in Pakistan, um, what happens is uh, the man of the house will have something happen to a family member. Maybe it's himself, maybe it's his wife, maybe it's a kid, and they will need some medical attention. But because of the poverty, they don't have any way to get medical attention, so they will go to a landowner or a rich man that has some money, and they will become indentured servants 
to this man in order to get a medical bill paid. The problem is that they will never pay off their debt. He will give them room and board, and every day this man, his wife, maybe a couple kids will work for this man in brick kilns. They'll make bricks. And the days will start as early as 4.30 in the morning, and most days do not end till midnight. And you don't think it's possible, but these families are living on, at least the man of the house is living on four hours of sleep per night. And he's working out in the baking sun, and he's making bricks. His wife and children will be joining him and and assist him in this. And he might start out with a $1,000 medical bill, but within a year's time, he'll now owe $2,000 because the man has, the landowner has provided him room and board. And so his debt just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing. And what happens is that at some point, the parents will die of old age. And when that happens, the children now become responsible for the debt. And so the children become lifelong indentured servants. And so what we're doing is there's a man there that I work with named Shamas, and we are hoping to be, this is my newest project that just came down the pike within the last month, but we are looking to build a school there that will educate some of these children. If they get a good education, then they can break this cycle and get a good job. And and, uh, this man I'm working with has quite a a lot of influence. His his brother is a, a government official and also works very works very closely with the police department. So they're hoping to to tell these landowners that these children need to be in school, get these children in school, and then and uh, get these children educated so that they can go on to have a real job instead of being slaves the rest of their lives. So that's our newest project that we're working on there. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. Hello, race fans. Eric Risen here from Yolo Racing. We are a group of firefighters and friends who compete in the Baja 1000, the toughest off-road race in the world. Every year we do race, we go down and through our charities, Firefighters Without Borders and Vancouver Firefighters Charitable Society, we make donations to needy communities down the Baja through firefighting equipment such as Jaws of Life. Last year we attempted to donate a completely outfitted pumper truck to a very needy town in La Mission. The truck has made it all the way down to San Diego and is waiting at the border. We are in desperate need of some more sponsorship money to get this vehicle across the border for brokerage fees. We do not have the funds to uh, finalize the transition into there. And the community that is expecting the fire truck is technically unprotected from any catastrophic event such as a wildfire. And we, we I can't tell you enough how urgent it is to get this vehicle across. We are doing fundraising up here uh, through our Facebook page, through our website. 
We will be doing a couple other events, but however long it takes us means that's going to be a delay in getting that vehicle across. So if we can raise that money instantly, that vehicle will be donated instantly. So if you can, please help us look for the donation page on our website or our Facebook page, and that's YOLORacing.com or YOLO Racing Facebook page. Thank you very much for all your consideration and support. We appreciate it. Brian, you've done an awful lot of stuff and had a lot of experiences, and um, I know your heart. I know you do this because you want to make a difference in the world, but tell us about the adventure side of it for a minute. Um, what's it like to go to these places and uh, see cultures that are so completely different and work with people uh, that are in such uh, harsh conditions? Well, it's a lot of times it's frustrating because you're people's expectations are pretty high. They think that, you know, that you have an endless bank account, that you are there to to give away your money. And um, so I, I'm not going to glamorize it. It's uh, pretty frustrating, but I believe that I'm uh, accomplishing something and I believe that I'm doing good. It doesn't matter to me how good it feels because it just doesn't feel good most of the time. But um, it, it's not about how I feel. It, it, it's about doing what I feel called to do. There's certainly some joy that I take when I know that I'm assisting someone. You know, I, I've worked with AIDS children a lot, children that have lost parents to, the, to AIDS. Sometimes the children have AIDS themselves. And I've found six or eight different products out there that help people with AIDS. Sometimes they can live lo- long lives. And when I share these products with people and they get to feeling better and they're not, you know, they're not on death's door anymore, certainly that is enjoyable. When you're over there and people are pulling on you or pinching you or, you know, they've, sometimes they've never seen a Mazungu they've, and their people are poking at you and pulling on your hair. They've never seen straight hair like this before. People have a lot of expectations. I, I don't know if you remember, Kurt, when we were first over there in Kenya, um, and we were sitting in George's house, and the people were lined up out the door. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. They were lined up out the door. We were writing down their needs, and people were coming in, and I need new shoes, and we would write it down, and somebody else would come in, I need a new house. They thought we could just buy them new houses, and we were just taking down their needs, and these people were lined up right out the door, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And those kind of things are kind of frustrating. You know, I have to add to that story, Brian, just because it touched me deeply. But we sat there for an hour and a half, two hours, maybe longer, while people came and, and told us what they needed. And um, there was very, very little that we could actually do to help in most cases. But at one point, a man came to us with his two young boys with tears rolling down his face, and he said, take my children, take my children with you to America and give them a chance. And it broke my heart. There was nothing we could do. You know, the the kids were probably better to be with their father than to come to America. But at the same time, 
some people have true desperation, and it was out of his love for his boys that he wanted to give them up. And uh, that leads me into my next question, Brian. You have found people around the globe that have needs, and you don't work through other organizations as much as you just go do stuff. How can people get involved if there are other people out there who say, I want to make a difference? What would you recommend for them to do? Well, it's really hard. It has taken me more than 20 years to be able to build relationships with people and find people you can trust. It's best to work with an organization in some way because you just can't trust most people. Most people are there to rob you blind and uh, um, they'll tell you anything you want to hear. You, you can't just go out and start working with people because they're going to rob you blind. And so uh, I would say find an organization to work with. You know, I was visiting with one of the friends that we made in Africa, an African man that lives in uh, Nakuru. He had tried to help some people in Tanzania, and he found a, a group down there that he thought he could lend some support for. And and so the people there in Nakuru had put together what little funding that they could scrape together, and they had given it to help this organization, these people down in Tanzania. And he said after months of not getting straight answers, he finally went down there and, of course, found out that the organization was a sham, it didn't exist, and that none of the money that they had sent had been put to use to help anybody. It was all just a scam for one guy to, to get some free money from another country. And so I asked him, being a Kenyan, I said, well, then who do you trust? How do you know who you can help and who you can support and who you shouldn't? And I, I found it very interesting because he said, you won't know, you can't know. So you just have to do the best you can and try to help people. And people are going to take your money that don't deserve it. But that doesn't mean that you can not help. And I thought, you know what? It's it's very frustrating when you find out that some shyster came along and... and uh, took money and didn't help people with it. But at the same time, by continuing to try to help, some of the money does get through and some people are helped and some organizations make a big difference. Brian, you've worked with safe houses and trying to help prostitutes and trying to uh, rescue gals out of sex trafficking. I mean, this is heavy stuff, but you are starting another uh, project that you call Five Loaves. What is that about? Well, we had started a safe house in Sierra Leone, and this is a place where we were rescuing girls out of brothels there. And we had about 60 girls set up in a safe house. And when I went there and visited a couple times, all of these girls that we were in our safe houses were uh, minors. They were all under 18. But I kept noticing as we would meet with these girls, other young women would show up at these meetings we were having. And they were 18 to 21, and they would all have babies on their hips. And I started asking some of the men there, um, what do these women do with their babies when they are in the room with the John? And they said, well, they, they, they bring the children right in with them. And uh, sometimes these were infants. Sometimes these children were two or three years old. And I said, I, you know, we can't let this continue to go on. And I said, let's start a center a daycare center, except in this case, it'll be a night care center. And when a woman goes out to work the streets or go work in a brothel, she can drop the kid off and the baby can stay with us. The baby's not exposed to this kind of stuff. And so we were getting ready to set up this Five Loaves Children's Center. In fact, the next day we were going to be open for business. A bunch of widows in this community were going to run this center for us. 
And a couple of the women said that the night before, before they were going to open, um, they heard a bunch of commotion and a baby crying out in the middle of the night. It was like 1.30 in the morning. And they ran outside with their lanterns and they found a hole and a shovel. And somebody had d- dug a hole and threw their baby, their infant, down in the hole. And they were getting ready to bury the baby alive because they couldn't take care of it. And the women got the baby and they, they saw a woman run off in the night when they went out there with their lanterns. And this became our first child at the Five Loaves Children's Center. Right now at this center, we have 18 children living there. What ended up happening was the prostitutes would come, drop their babies off, and then they wouldn't come back for them. I should have saw that coming, but I didn't. And uh, we actually got a paperwork in order and actually started an orphanage because it was no longer a nightcare center. It was an orphanage because the children are ours now. And uh, so that's been operating a couple years now, and uh, we have 18 kids there. Wow. It's amazing, you know. It, it, I mean, obviously, you're you're battling against prostitution. You find a need that could help these ladies who, you know, you've not managed to rescue out of prostitution yet. And uh, thinking that you're going to help take care of their children, the next thing you know, you've got an orphanage. Yeah. And then I just heard about a month ago, uh, the guy that runs the center there, he told me that most of the prostitutes now that dropped off their babies are now dead. They've all died of AIDS or Ebola, one of the two. We also do an Ebola project in that same area where we have 19 children that we um, we got them from the hospital. What was happening is people, families were going in when this Ebola crisis happened about a year ago in Sierra Leone. Um, families were going to the hospital to get checked out to see if they were positive for Ebola. And they would quarantine the husband and wife, and sometimes they'd quarantine the children even. And some of the children would not be positive for Ebola. And so they would just be at the hospital and their parents would be at another area quarantined. And the hospital got a hold of um, some of the men I worked with and said, hey, I hear you uh, take in orphans. We have we have children at the hospital that are basically living at the hospital and we don't know what to do with them. And so they gave us these children and we started um, finding homes for these children. So up to date, we have uh, 19 children that we Uh, took off the hospital's hands. You know, I think what it goes to show is that if you're willing to get involved and uh, make a difference, then all sorts of things will will pop up. Needs are everywhere. Yeah. More and more doors just continue to open, and and we just continue to have more and more success in assisting children in the most dire of situations. I've always said that I'm not real interested in working in poverty situations. Um, I'm interested in working in the worst of the worst situations. Um, poverty is one thing, you know, two thirds of the world is in poverty, but people that are affected by mainly by war, by AIDS, Ebola, by slavery, children that are affected by these things is where I want to be. Well, I'm glad you're out there doing it. Curtis, do you remember that time that you introduced me to the word chocolate gravy? (laughs) You know, we always like to end our show with a funny story, and the chocolate gravy story is a funny one. So let's go to that. But before we do, Brian, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about what you're doing, your work is faith-based, and you have an organization that is called Casita International Ministries. Casita means something of value. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about this? The best way is through our website, casita.org, 
which is spelled K-E-S-I-T-A-H dot O-R-G. Okay, well, I'm sure that there are listeners out there who are, who are just thinking, wow, I, this guy is showing me a side of the planet that I didn't even know existed, and he's out there making a difference, and I'd like to plug in to do something like that, too. So you'll give people advice and point them in some directions? Yes, I, I mean, I, I'll do what I can. I don't know what their specific questions would be, but there's um, even a lot of organizations I'm aware of that are doing some pretty phenomenal things. Um, and if, if you're interested in the sex trafficking industry, I, I can definitely point you in the right direction to some people that are doing far more than I am uh, that are completely trustworthy and a good place to plug in your money to. You know, of course, you know, other organizations are won't be so focused on sex trafficking. There's other organizations that are more focused on um, poverty and things. Um, But, you know, if you want to get a hold of us, then I can certainly steer you in the right direction to tell you some some ways to get involved. Thanks, Brian, for that, and thank you for your time today. Now let's talk about chocolate gravy. I'll start the story just so people know what we're talking about. When we were in Kenya, it was very common for the, the people that we were meeting there to ask us about the kind of foods that we like to eat. And when I grew up in Oklahoma, chocolate gravy, which some people have never even heard of, was a favorite breakfast. And essentially all it was was a gravy made out of milk and flour with some chocolate and sugar put in it. So it it literally was a gravy that was chocolate, kind of like a pudding, and we would eat it hot over biscuits with butter and probably one of the worst things you could possibly eat for breakfast. But boy, did I love it when I was a kid. So... People were always asking us about food, and uh, we decided that chocolate gravy would become a code word. What was that about? Well, you and I were building this school. You know, we were in our early to mid-20s. There was four of us, and the family we were staying with, the the woman of the house, it, you know, in Kenya, it's not uncommon for the husband to be a good 20 to 30 years older than his wife. Well, this man was probably, I don't know, he was probably 40 or so, and his wife was around our age. She was 25, you think? And probably. she took a liking to me. I had my own little tent out in the front yard, and you and another traveler were in another larger tent. And the man of the house was away in the evening, the sun had went down and it was dark. And the next thing you know, this woman got in the tent with me. She uh, started asking me all kinds of questions. And do you, do you remember some of those questions? Because you were you were overhearing all this in the next tent. Well, at first I wasn't paying attention, but she was asking lots of questions to see how enticed you might be with her. And so we had the the code word. But we didn't come up with this code word until after the fact, because you you overheard what was going on over there, and she was asking me all kinds of questions about how many cows you have to trade for your wife, and if I had a, a girlfriend, and how many cows I would have to give her father to take that girlfriend as my wife, and that over in Kenya, it was okay if, if you had a girlfriend on the side, and even if you were married. And so she was making it known that she was available. Anyway, Curtis came and saved the day. He came over there and, and uh, interrupted the whole scene, and I was glad that he showed up because, you know, if her husband had came home, who knows what it would have happened. I would have ended up in – I could have ended up in jail. <laughs> so it was bad. But after that, 
Curtis, you told me if this woman ever gives you problems again, just say the word chocolate gravy and you'll come running. <laughs> and that became the code word to protect you from from uh, an uncomfortable situation. Right. Uh, that was uh, that was a crazy time that differences in cultures, I think, created. But one thing I thought was really funny, I got to tell one on you, Brian. In another conversation, I was asking about marriage and and dating and that sort of thing, and they were talking about how um, to buy a wife usually would be. You know, some wives are worth three cows, and some wives were worth six or eight cows, and and it just seems so strange to me that people were essentially paying a dowry of cattle, you know, to get a wife, and the father of the bride would negotiate with the with the suitor to find out how many cows he could get for his daughter. But then, as they were explaining this to me, they said, "Unless you're someone like Brian," I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, Brian is tall." And handsome and strong, so he would make a good husband to defend a man's daughter as a wife. And so, someone like Brian, the father, will pay him eight nine cows to take the daughter. <laughs> and I just thought it was really funny. We had a, a lady with us there that was a sister of one of the guys who was traveling with us. A, a, a great gal. She was proposed to a few times. For marriage, and uh, lots of cows were offered. <laughs> anyway, it, it was funny times, and these are the sorts of experiences, I think, that can change a life when you meet it, people from another culture and you find out that on the bottom level, we're all humans, and we all want the same things. We want, we want to have happy lives. We want to have the opportunity to work and to grow and to love our families. And, and uh, some people are in situations that are much more difficult than others. And Brian, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the planet. Thank you on behalf of everyone for the work that you've done to try to make a difference in some of these communities where life is not so easy and where people don't have the same opportunities that we would like for everyone to have. So Brian, thank you for that very much. You're welcome. Thank you for saying that. And it's been a privilege to be able to talk about my life and the opportunities I've had and I uh, I love what I do, and it's been a it's been a great journey. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, and I continue to look for ways to continue to travel overseas and continue to keep doing the same thing. Wow. Well, thank you very much for your time today and for showing our listeners a totally different side to this planet. What you do is beyond what most people would think of as adventure because uh, it's it's real. It's not just a personal challenge you create by trying to climb a rock wall or jump out of an airplane. You know, you're you're facing real challenges with real people who need your help, and we appreciate that. So, everyone, until next time, get out there, make a difference in the world, and have some fun. Would you like to be a guest on a future show? Just go to AdventureSportsPodcast.com and click the Contact Us button.